in there. We'll be spending most of our time in Luke 18 and in the, the passages before that. Um, at this time in the book of Luke, Jesus is coming to the end of his ministry. He is uh, definitely faced towards Jerusalem. Him and the disciples are headed that way. And he, is, he is, has some urgent things still that he wants the disciples to know, participate, particularly concerning salvation and, and how men are to be, to be saved. And so today in, in our passage in Luke 18, starting in verse 18, we have, we have a, a, a narrative account, something that actually happened. This is not a parable, but something that happened, and, and Jesus uses this again to, to teach his disciples about salvation. Starting in verse 18, it says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So this is a pretty intriguing passage, and it's one that's found in all three of the what we call the synoptic gospels. It's found in Matthew 19 and also in Mark 10. And uh, this guy comes, he has a, he has a good question. It's one that's, uh, you know, if we had one question to ask Jesus and, and knew that we would get the truth, this is probably as good a question as you could ask of Jesus. How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not the first time we've heard this question. You guys remember a few months back, Samir preached out of Luke chapter 10 when a lawyer came up trying to trap Jesus. And he asked the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him and he gave the commandments and then Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, this young man seems to be coming with a different, different uh, agenda on his mind. We, we, by looking at all three passages, we've learned a little bit about, about who this young man is. Um, first in Matthew, we learn that he's young. It doesn't mention that in Luke, in, in Luke here, but in Matthew, it talks about a young man coming to Jesus. Um, here we, in Luke, we see that he's a ruler, and therefore, we get that part from, from the Gospel of Luke. And then all three of them talk about the man's wealth. And, and, and in the interchange there, it, it says that he went away sad because he was very wealthy. So we take all that together and we put it together and we have the rich young ruler. Even though he's not called that in any of the passages, um, he's known as that because of the three passages put together. We also know a few other things uh, about this young man. Um, he comes in Mark, it, it talks about him running up to Jesus and kneeling before him. So we know that he has this question. He's very eager to know the answer. He, he has a question that has to be answered. 
Again, Jesus has been ministering in this area for a few years, and perhaps this man has heard Jesus' teaching, and he's, he's finally come to the conclusion that if anybody knows the answer to this question, it's got to be Jesus. And so I have to have this question answered. And so we would say he's, he's an eager young man. We also say it would say that he, he's reverent. In Mark, it also talks about him running up to Jesus and kneeling before him to ask this question. And so he's, he's uh, acknowledging uh, you know, that Jesus has some authority and he has some, some weight to him. I mean, even in his, in his uh, address to Jesus, he calls him good teacher. Um, that's not something that was normally called of the, of the teachers at that time. The, the rabbis certainly were people that were asked questions, but they wouldn't call, generally wouldn't call them good teacher. It would basically be like teacher or rabbi or something like that. Um, and like I said, he seems to have a very different agenda. When uh, some of these uh, rulers and, and people from the, from the area, like the Pharisees and the scribes, would come to question Jesus, they came trying to trap him. This man has, has a different purpose. He needs to know the answer to this question. And so we see him coming up and, and asking Jesus this question, and we, we you know, immediately think to ourselves, if any of us have done any evangelism, this looks like a pretty good prospect. You know, he's a hot lead. He wants to know right away. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves then why he asked this question. Um, out of all the questions, again, that he could ask Jesus, he chose this one. And like I said, I think it's a good question and an important question. But apparently there was something in him that was needing an answer to this question. I mean, apparently he was looking for some type of peace or joy or just some assurance, um, a sure hope in something. But definitely something was missing in him. You know, he had the wealth. He, had, uh, he was a man of position. Um, we don't know exactly what it means to be a ruler, that Luke calls him, but very possibly he was a ruler in the local, local synagogue or you know, possibly part of the Sanhedrin or something like that. We tend to think he was part of the, the Jewish community there, probably not a Roman, just in his familiarity with Jesus and in the way he asks his questions. He seems to be familiar with the commandments. So he's probably a local Jewish, Jewish ruler, and that would kind of limit things in, in that time since they were under the rule of Rome. Um, so He's looking for something, and, and he's, like I said, he's, he's familiar with, he seems to be familiar with Jesus and also with, with the, uh, the uh, Old Testament. Um, it kind of brings to mind, uh, perhaps you've heard some, some uh, quotes, uh, St. Augustine, he, he talked about men being restless until they find their rest in God. And uh, Blaise Pascal, he, he talked about men having a God-shaped hole in their heart, and that only God could fill that. And so this man seemed to have that sense about him. He had all these things, it was money, the position, he even seemed to have an upright uh, moral character about him, and yet all this did not satisfy him. There was still something missing, and so he asked this question about inheriting eternal life. And so what is he asking for there? What is this eternal life? Um, to understand that, we really need to, again, Jesus talks much about eternal life, and he talks about the kingdom of God. And these two terms are used uh, interchangeably, even, even in this, these passages that we're looking at. And so it's talking about something that is more of a, of a quality than, than a quantity of life. Oftentimes we think of eternal life and we think of that time after we die that we are going to live forever. Um, and it's either going to be eternal life or it's going to be eternal death. And that's what this, this uh, young man seems to understand that, that difference. He, he understands that there's something missing and he wants that eternal life. But again, it's, it's more of a, a, a quality thing. Um, before the fall uh, of Adam, when Adam and Eve sinned and were 
banished from the Garden of Eden, men had perfect fellowship with God. They were able to commune with him and enjoy his presence, have joy in his presence, uh, just uh, to talk to him and walk with him and, and just fellowship and commune with God. After the fall, we are no longer able to do that. We are, the, the Bible says that we are spiritually dead, so we don't have this ability to commune and, and fellowship with God and to seek after him. And so the Jews, they understood this, and, and they, they believed that God was eventually going to restore all things, as he promised. And they begin to think of that as the age to come. They were looking back to that age before the fall, and now they're in this, this period where, where because of our sin and our deadness, we are no longer able to fellowship and, and commune with God. And so they're looking for the time when God would restore things and bring about that age to come when we would have, again, that fellowship and communion with God. And so they, they, they even talked about it as being that divine life, that they could participate in God's life, um, that life free from sin, able, you know, where it's, it's free from uh, just the... the the bindings of sin and free from the bindings of time even and it's, it's an eternal life that God possesses and yet he's going to impart that with us as well. And this is what the Jews uh, became to think of. Jesus even tells us it's, a, it's something more than just living forever. Um, he talked in, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came and Jesus began to talk to him about the kingdom of God and how one had to be born again to be a part of this kingdom of God. So he's talking about a different life than, than we currently are living. And, and so he's, he's showing that, and this is what they believed, it's, it's, it's much more than living for a long time. It's, it's about living the, in, a, in a world like God dwells in and being able to communicate and fellow, commune and fellowship with him and just experience life the way God in, intended us to. Um, so that is behind what his question is. When he says, uh, you know, how do I inter- inherit this eternal life? He's asking for more than something, just life after death. He's looking for, for, for something much greater than that. And so then Jesus begins to answer him in kind of a strange way. Um, he, asks, he asks the man a question right off the bat. Why do you call me good? Um, Jesus answered. He doesn't, he doesn't give him a chance to respond to this, but, but Jesus is doing something here. Again, he's not, he's not just answering the man's question directly, but he's trying to show him something. And I also would encourage you to remember that the disciples are watching this very closely. And so Jesus is showing them something as well as, as the way he goes about uh, dialoguing with this young man and, and answering his questions. And so Jesus is, first off, he's saying, why do you call me good? Only, only no one is good except God alone. And he's, he's trying to show him that this young man, that he has a, uh, in a sense, a, a wrong perception of what good is. He, 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 like most of us, tend to think of good as, as a relative term. Um, you know, we keep most of the commandments, we only break a few, or we tend to be, think of that as good. Or, you know, we're, we're better than that person who, uh, you know, has murdered five people or, or five million people or whatever. We're better than them, therefore we can call ourselves good. But Jesus is saying that this is not how God views good. When we talk about God being good, it, it's something totally different than that. Only God is good. All the rest of us, because we have sinned, because we have fallen short of God's standard, have fallen short of, of giving him glory, we are not good. We are evil and, and, in all that we do. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to first and foremost get to, because he knows where this is going. 
And he knows that this man is not seeing this rightly and probably thinks of himself as good. And he wants right off the bat to, to, to communicate to this young man that you're not good. And he's beginning to uh, systematically kind of take apart this man's foundation for why he perhaps believes that he's very close uh, to eternal life. So he begins by uh, talking about that. Why do you call me good? And like I say, he doesn't give him a chance to respond because he's just trying to make a point um, there. But he, then he goes right into, um, in a sense, answering this man's question. Um, and he, again, he does it in a way that perhaps we would not think to do. Um, if, again, if you've done any evangelism, somebody comes up and asks you this question, you're going to have, you know, you've got a ready answer. You know, you're, oh man, he's wanting eternal life, he's wanting salvation, he just needs to believe in Jesus and be saved. And we tend to oversimplify it. But again, Jesus knows this man's heart, and he knows that this man is not actually seeking what he seems to be seeking. He's seeking something different. And so... Jesus doesn't say any of the things that we would say. He doesn't say, whosoever calls on the Lord shall be saved. He doesn't say what Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus could have quoted Isaiah 55, 6-7. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our Lord, to our God, for he will, he will abundantly pardon so we have these, all these things he could draw on. And we've, we've seen Jesus in, in, already in the Gospels. He talks about, if anyone thirsts, come to me, and I will satisfy. Um, he says things like, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so when he, when he comes to this answer, and he tells the man, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. That doesn't seem like Jesus is preaching a gospel. It sounds like he's preaching law here, that somehow this man could be saved by keeping the commandments perfectly. Um, again, that's not something where we would go. We, we tend to emphasize, oh, no, salvation is a free gift. You don't have to do anything to, to earn salvation. You have to just believe. And, and, and uh, you know, we, we want to emphasize that free gift so often because, you know, that, that'll hook them. That'll draw them in. They, everybody wants something free. And, and eternal life, that sounds like something really good. Um, so we offer them that and, and think that, wow, you know, they want that. Surprise, surprise. Um, who doesn't want something free? And then so we just kind of lead them through a prayer and, well, you know, kind of pronounce them as saved. But Jesus is saying that it's not always as it appears. And he's going to dig a little deeper into this, this man's heart and, and show these things, uh, show us some things about so-called seekers. Um, and we say, you know, Jesus believes all those things that, that I just said, you know, those are all perfectly true. And like I said, Jesus pronounced some of these things himself in, in that it's just believe and, and you will be saved. Um, but, and he's believing those things, and at the same time, we can say that just because he tells this man, you know, do these commandments, keep these and you'll be saved, he's not distorting the gospel. Again, he's using the law in a different way. He's not using the, the law to, to show this man how to be saved but in a, in a sense, he's, he's using the law as, as the way Paul describes in, in Galatians 3.24 as a tutor to teach us that we need to be saved. He's using the law for that purpose. Um, Romans 7, 7 through 13 says, The law is good. It is holy. And the law helps us to know what sin is. So, again, he's telling these, 
He's telling these to this man so that he can see the incredibly high standard that is required by God and also see the impossibility for any man to keep that standard. Jesus wants, to see, wants this man to see that he had broken God's laws and was a sinner. This man was not coming with that posture to Jesus. He's coming with, see what I have, see all the good things that I have done. What else do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus wants, is saying, this is not the right posture to come to God in. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But it, Jesus knows that uh, this, this is not going to save this man. But what he wants to do, again, is to show this man that he has broken God's law and is a sinner. Um, Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. He says, no person is justified by keeping the law, for no man can perfectly keep the law. And in fact, anyone who does try to keep the law actually uh, is under a curse. And only Jesus can redeem us from that curse. Um, and it's by faith that we gain that eternal life. So Jesus shares God's law with this ruler. And the young ruler says, at first he says, he has kept the law. So in his mind, again, he's not thinking that he's guilty. And I'm, you know, probably looking at these externals of the five that Jesus mentioned um, in, in this passage. You know, he probably thinks, you know, I have been faithful to my wife if he's married. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered anybody. Um, I've never stolen. You know, he's a very rich man. Why would he need to steal? Um, you know, he's, perhaps he has honored his father and mother. Perhaps he hasn't given false testimony. And externally, all these things he probably has kept. If he, if he had been at the Sermon on the Mount, he might have heard Jesus talk more about how these things come from the heart and begin to... Uh, uh, have a take place in the heart that we break these commandments. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother, you have murdered him already. And he would say things like, if you lust after woman, you have already committed adultery. And so Jesus gets much more internal. And we might expect him to do that here. To kind of like, okay, we've got to bring this down so that we can see that this is, this is at a heart level. But he... he Let's the man just give his response. I've kept all these, uh, I've, I've kept all these commandments um, since I was a boy. In verse 21 it says that. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And, and, but I suspect that he, if he knows Jesus is, uh, t- about Jesus' teachings, he probably knows there's something more there. And, and he still is at, waiting for the answer from Jesus because this hasn't satisfied him. You know, he hasn't received this assurance that Oh, I've kept all these, therefore I must be inheriting eternal life. There's still something missing in his heart, so he, he needs more. And then Jesus uh, kind of goes right for the, for the kill on this one. And he, he says to the man, you, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So Jesus doesn't deal with whether he had actually kept, faithfully kept those five commandments or not. He now goes for the, for the most foundational commandment that there is in the, the first commandment, in, in the Ten Commandments. Um, he knew that this man was not convinced, convinced that he was a sinner here. And he knew the heart of this young man. And so instead of going over these, he goes right to it and, and basically sh- is showing this man that his possessions are a god to him. We see his response says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And it talks about in the other passages about him walking away with sadness. Um, so Jesus says, 
in a sense, successfully demonstrated to him that he had a different God. He was not ready to serve God the way the, the first commandment said to have no other gods before the one true God. He, he had this God of possessions. And so Jesus, by giving him this requirement, knowing that he will not do it, he shows that, that uh, he has this one basic commandment that he has broken, the, the most, essentially the first commandment. As the lawyer had talked about in, uh, in Luke chapter 10, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This man was not doing that. And I think it's interesting that he, he went away sad. Um, there was a sense in that he knew Jesus had the authority to command that and, and to say, to follow me. And he went away sad. You've got to think that if, if he just disagreed with Jesus that this wasn't the right thing to do, he would get mad and just kind of dismiss Jesus. But the fact that he went away sad gives us a sense that he knows that that's true and yet he can't do it. He's not going to be able to sell his possessions and, and follow Jesus. And that's what Jesus begins to, to uh, tell to the disciples. Um, first of all, we see this command of, of Jesus telling this man, you need to sell all you have and give to the poor and then follow me. And we, we see from Scripture that that's not a requirement to be saved. I mean, there's plenty of other people there are accounts in, in the scriptures where Jesus pronounced people saved on the basis of their faith. Um, we, if you look just over in, in Luke 19, we're not going to read through that passage, but perhaps you're familiar with the passage where Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is, uh, he has Jesus over to his house. And Jesus just coming to his house causes this man to have such joy that he wants to, in a sense, make up for, for the sins that he committed. He's going to repay all the money that he had stolen. He's going to begin to do things to, to uh, help the poor. It says that he sold half his possessions. And Jesus declares that salvation has come to this house. He didn't sell all his possessions. He hasn't sold anything yet. He's just saying, I'm going to sell half my possessions. I'm going to repay what I've taken. But Jesus says salvation has come to this house today based on the change that he saw in this man's life. He was turning from what he had formerly done as a wicked tax collector and defrauding people and lying to people and stealing from people. And now he's turned into a person that wants to do what Jesus wants him to do in repaying that and following after him. And so... It's not a requirement that he do all this, but it's definitely a demonstration that there has been repentance in the heart of Zacchaeus. And Jesus is able to say, salvation has come to this house. And there's other people that come to Jesus um, and, and demonstrate faith in, in various ways, like the centurion who demonstrates a, a knowledge of, of authority. And Jesus says, this is, this is such great faith I haven't seen in the whole country of Israel. And we get a sense that this man is saved and others are saved on the basis of their faith. They didn't have to sell all their possessions. But at the same time, there are times where, where Jesus requires some people. You need to, he'll, he'll say things, you need to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow me. Um, you know, he gives an example of where some, some people come up with excuses as to why they can't follow Jesus. And he basically says, you know, depart from me. You, you're not ready to follow me if you're not ready to, to give up your family and your possessions and all these things. And he's not saying that those things are requirements, but those would definitely be demonstrations of repentance. And that's what he's asking from this, this rich young ruler. So I just want to make sure that you understand that that's, this is not what was required. Um, what's required is that, that we worship God first and, and put him first and all these other things 
become secondary, lesser priorities. Um, none of us, that, to my knowledge here, have been asked to give up our family in order to be saved. But there are countries in this, in this world where that's, that's a, in a sense, what these people are being asked to do. For Muslims to become Christians in some nations, they're going to have to give up their families. Some of them are going to have to give up their jobs. It'll, it's going to cost them a lot to become Christians. It might cost them everything. It might cost them their lives. Um, but that is certainly not the requirement in order to be saved. It might be something that will happen to these people and that will be a, an opportunity for them to demonstrate repentance and that they're willing to pay this cost. And so we, we see that though this is not a requirement, it, it's, it's certainly within Jesus' right to demand everything that we have. If we are going to follow him and confess him as Lord and King, everything we have is his. Our lives, our possessions, our reputations, everything uh, belongs to him. And so this is part of what this man understands, is that Jesus has this right to, to demand this, and he leaves with sadness. Again, showing two things. I think showing that he understands what Jesus is saying, but also showing that he has an idol in his heart. There's something that he is worshiping before the, the, the true and living God. They're, like I said, violating the, uh, the first commandment, to have no other gods before God. And so he leaves in sadness and, and walks away, and Jesus can see the sadness on him. Turned the page and lost my spot. Okay. So Jesus, in verse 24 now, this is where Jesus really is turning his attention to the disciples and teaching them and, and trying to explain to them what has just happened and what they should be taking away from this. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he has this great illustration just showing how hard it is. And in fact, it's impossible for men to be saved, for these rich men to be saved. And it's actually impossible for men to be saved. And he, so he's trying to, to teach this to the disciples, and he has this illustration of trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's, it, it's impossible. It's, it's uh, just not going to happen. And the same way, it's a rich man in and of himself is not going to enter the kingdom of God. And you'll see that that's kind of where he uses that interchangeably. The, the young man asked, how do I inherit eternal life. And Jesus now is talking about entering the kingdom of God, just showing that those two things are, are, are the same. When, when Jesus is talking about these, he's meaning the same things. And so this prompts a question to be asked. Who then can be saved? Um, and, and Jesus hears this question. Or these people hear this and they, they ask perhaps themselves, amongst themselves, perhaps to Jesus directly, who can be saved? You know, they looked at this young uh, Young man, he's rich, wealthy, he's got, he's got the, the position, he's a ruler, you know, in the local, perhaps in the local synagogue. Um, he has everything going for him. You know, they just heard, in a sense, how he testified to, to being morally upright, that he's kept all the commandments. And again, they're looking at this young man and just thinking, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? You know, in, in that culture, wealth especially was, was viewed as a blessing from God. If, if you were wealthy, you were, you were blessed by God. And so they're looking at someone and they're thinking, man, this, he's got extreme blessing from God, and yet he's not going to enter the kingdom of God. Who can be saved if, if, if he can't? And so Jesus takes this opportunity again to teach, and he, he just makes this statement. 
verse 27, Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so we got to understand why is, why is this so hard? Why is it impossible for men to enter the kingdom of God? And we have to understand, again, what Jesus was showing is that there, there is a heart there that has a, a, a defect. It's dead. It, it cannot worship the one true God. And, that, and Jesus, in his teachings throughout, throughout the Gospels, he talks about men needing new hearts. He's saying that out of the heart is where the sin comes from. It, it, uh, that's where it comes out, and that's what causes us to be uh, um, dead and are unable to, to come to God. That's why he talked about, again, to Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, you have to be born again. You have to have this new life, this new heart that can follow after God, that can worship God as he ought. And so we see over and over again in Scripture, way back in the Old Testament, it was prophesied even in Ezekiel that God is going to come and he's going to sprinkle with water and cleanse people's lives and give them new hearts, that hearts that can serve God and follow after him. And so Jesus is building on this and just showing them that, again, the disciples is like, this is, salvation is all of God. This is not anything that man can accomplish on his own. He needs a new heart. He needs something done in his life so that he can come to God and, and repent of these things and, and follow after Jesus. And so we see this and, and then Peter says to him a, a kind of a strange statement. Um, he says, uh, we have left all we had to follow you. I'm not really sure what Peter's getting at. <laughs> He's saying, well, are, are you sure about that, Jesus? Because we came to you and, you know, I'm not sure if he's just trying to get some, some, uh, some pat on the head, like, yeah, you did a good thing, Peter. But Jesus just keeps going and, and showing him that, again, salvation is all of God. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the, in the age to come eternal life. So in a sense, he's saying to Peter, you know, God has given you all these things. You've, you've, brought, yeah, you've brought what you, what you have and you've given it to God, but it's like, it's like you know, complaining about spending a, a dollar and hitting $500 million on the on the lottery. Look what I had to spend in order to win this $500 million. Um, it, it's, it's nothing in comparison to what God has done and what God is doing in this life and in the life to come. Again, that eternal life encompasses all of that from that moment that we come to Jesus and, and in faith. He gives us that new heart and, and at the same time a new life that is able to fellowship with God and commune with him and, and follow after Jesus in that. And so we see that he's just all through this passage just trying to show these uh, disciples and the people who are listening that salvation is a work of God. You have to come to him knowing that we are, are, are unable to to follow him apart from the work of God and all the blessings that follow are God just pouring out goodness and, 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 and multitudes of things into our life. Again, not in response, not because of anything we have done, but because of what God has done in our lives. So how do we respond in this if we're, if we're unable? Jesus gives us some teaching. Again, this is a, right in the middle of a section, right before you know, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, um, to, to be crucified. And so he's got some intense teaching going on here that he's doing with these disciples. And right before this in, in Luke chapter 18, um, we have a couple of, uh, of 
passages that, that help to demonstrate a little more of, of the proper response to, to God. Um, right after this, we see that I, I, I talked about the, the passage with Zacchaeus, where, again, Jesus is showing this is the way people are to respond to God. There's going to be a change. There's going to be repentance. Um, but here, in, before this, in, in Luke 18, he has a couple little uh, a parable and another little narrative passage that kind of show of what coming to God is going to look like. So if you want to just back up a little bit there in Luke 18 to verse 9. It says, um, Jesus is directing this parable to, to some who are confident of their own righteousness. It says, uh, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Then we also have this tax collector who's there. He's in the distance, and he says, uh, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we're seeing kind of a contrast here already. We, we saw the, the, the passage where that rich young ruler came. And we can see that he came, he came more like the Pharisees. He came talking about, him, in a sense, about himself, of what he had done. Um, he, or at least we, we sense that he's thinking, I have done these things. I have great wealth. I have this position. Um, I think I'm pretty close to eternal life. Um, I just need one more thing. You know, what, what's... What, what good thing do I need to do to, to get eternal life? And then we have this tax collector, and he's more of a demonstration of how this man should have come. He should have come just knowing I'm an idolater. I love my possessions. I love my position. I love the power I have, the prestige. Um, and I know these, this is an offense to God. These are, 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 uh, these are keeping me from him. I need, I need God's mercy. And so this tax collector... Um, these were the, these were kind of considered the lowest in society. These were men who were considered traitors to the Jews in that they served the Roman uh, occupying uh, government there. They would collect the taxes, and the Romans really didn't care how they went about it, and so they, would, they could do it in the most wicked ways possible, of, of collecting way more taxes than they needed to, of uh, defrauding the people in any way they could. But basically, they were considered the, the, the worst sinners, uh, of, the, of the, the people at that time. So when Jesus talked about a tax collector, that's what the people would think. You know, oh, he's a bad guy. You know, he, he's just full of sin and wickedness. Um, there's no hope for him. But uh, the way he came to God, the posture that he had of beating, beating his breast and just saying, God, have mercy on me, uh, a sinner. I'm a wicked sinner, and I am totally in need of God's mercy. Jesus is in that rich young ruler passage showing this is the posture that, that man should have come to. Um, he's just basically, again, telling me, he told this parable to people who were trusting in their righteousness, and he's just showing them that, that being righteous, and the, their righteousness was according to their own standards, not to God's standards. He's not talking about people who are righteous according to God's standards, but their own righteousness. They thought themselves righteous because of the way they uh, conducted their, their lives. Um, Perhaps they thought, well, we go to the temple every week, we, we pay our tithe, um, you know, like, like they said, 
Um, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. There's so many religious things that, that we do these days. We give our offerings. We come to the worship service. There's many that believe that's enough. That's, that's the good works that they, that they are doing, and they believe themselves to be righteous. Um, some people, just because they're not involved in certain types of sins, you know, I don't do drugs, I, I don't get drunk, um, I'm not immoral, I'm not cheating on my taxes, so I'm, I'm, therefore I'm righteous. I'm, I'm doing things the right way. Um, also, maybe some just because of the type of church they go to. You know, I go to a Lutheran church or a Baptist church or you know, a Buddhist church, whatever. Uh, just be, be, belong to a Bible-believing church, whatever it is. They equate that with righteousness and think, I do these things, um, therefore I'm righteous. But understand, these are all man's standards. It's their own righteousness. They've declared themselves righteous. God has not declared them righteous. According to their standards, uh, his standards, none of them are righteous. Um, we do these good deeds make ourselves look righteous, but they come from a sinful heart, and they, they're offensive to God. They, they have selfish motives involved in, in trying to make ourselves righteous. And that, that is just compounding the, the wickedness um, that we have. If we get into this conundrum of, of trying to do enough good works to please God, you, can, you never know when you have enough. Um, there is nowhere in Scripture that says this is how many good works you must do to, to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Jesus set that standard pretty high. You have to keep all the commandments perfectly. Um, a few years ago, I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door and at first, I didn't want to talk to them. Jasmine had been, they had been coming during the week and having uh, talks with Jasmine. And, and so this was like, I think it was a holiday, like Labor Day. And uh, of course, they, they don't like celebrating holidays, so they, they go out and do some door-to-door. And, you know, they came to our door, and, and I'm just like, I don't want to deal with them. I was busy <laughs> doing something. But Jasmine invited them in. She, she, had, she had been regularly talking to them. And somehow they drew me in to the story, uh, into the, the conversation and uh, they told me I needed to do good works to be saved. And I asked the lady, I said, well, how many? Because um, I don't want to do more than I have to. And she's just kind of like, what? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I understand. I've got to do some good works to be saved, but how many do I have to do? You know, can you show me in Scripture, you know, just where the line is? I just want to kind of ease over the line and, you know, be saved that way. And she just didn't know what to do with me, really. <laughs> but, but she took me to another passage in, in Matthew where Jesus talks about good trees producing good fruit and bad trees producing bad fruit. And she says, here, don't you see, you need to produce good fruit. And I said, okay, so you're saying I'm a bad tree. And she's like, yeah. I said, so how do I produce good fruit? And, and she's just like, I'm like, I, how do I become a good tree? And she goes, well, you, do good, you produce good fruit. I said, but I'm a bad tree. I produce bad fruit. How can I produce good fruit? And when you get into that works righteousness, there's no assurance. You don't know where the line is. You don't know, have I done enough good works? Have I done too many bad works? And you realize there's nothing in Scripture that will show you where that line is. Because the line is way high. Only Jesus has kept it. And everybody else falls short. Whether you've done one sin or a billion sins, you still fall short. You're a sinner condemned by God. And... That's his standard. And so we are all in need of mercy, just like that tax collector. He's no more wicked than we are. Apart from God, we are all fall way short of God's standard. Then Jesus has another story there right after that in, in Luke, in chat, starting in verse 15, 18, verse 15. 
says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so here, again, we're seeing an aspect of how do we come to Jesus. And this one's kind of troublesome because we don't really know exactly what Jesus is saying is come as a little child. You know, some people have suggested, well, maybe, maybe you know, children are pretty humble. Maybe we've got to go in humility. And I'm like, I don't know. I have a two-year-old, and there's nothing humble about him. Um, as, <laughs> you know, at times, if he doesn't get what he wants, he would kill you if he could. Um, he, gets, he gets that angry. He wants his way so bad. So I, I'm not sure that there's a humility there that we want to emulate uh, in children. Um, and same thing, you know, people will say like, well, children have such pure faith. And the reality is children will believe anything. Um, they are very gullible. It's not a faith based on knowledge. It's, it's just, you know, it, it, it's one of the conundrums of doing Sunday school and evangelism with children is that it's very easy to get them to pray a prayer if that's what you're aiming for. If you can, you know, there's, there's so many uh, vacation Bible schools and things like that where their whole goal is to get that child to pray a prayer and then kind of like pat him on the head and, oh, good, you've just inherited eternal life. And these kids can grow up thinking that and, and they're believing a lie because they haven't repented of their sin and followed after Jesus. So, but one thing that we do see in here is that people were bringing the babies to Jesus. There was a common Jewish practice for the parents to bring their one-year-olds usually uh, to the local rabbis or to a local official to receive blessings. And these parents were bringing these helpless children to Jesus and wanting blessings from him. And I think that's more the aspect of what Jesus is, is, is going after here, that these are helpless children. They're coming to God helplessly. They, they're actually being brought to God. They're being brought to Jesus in much the same way we have to be brought to, to Jesus. We are helpless to go there. We won't seek after him um, apart from a work being done. And so we see these, these two aspects of, of how these people came. The, the tax collector, he comes just in search of mercy. And coming like a baby is just coming with, with helplessness. God, I cannot change myself. Only you can do that. And, and we come to him uh, looking for that eternal life. And so as we close today, I just want to pray that some of you are feeling restless, perhaps. Maybe you know that you don't yet have eternal life. And like this rich young ruler, you need to have that question answered. What do I have to do to have it? Um, uh, I just want to say, I know you're in need of God's mercy. All of us are in need of God's mercy. And all of us are helpless um, to do anything about it. But I believe that today, like those helpful, helpless infants that the parents were bringing to Jesus, God has brought you here today. He has brought you here to hear from, from his son. And I'm just telling you that Jesus today, he's asking the same thing. He's asking to repent and believe. And I'm telling you too, he's asking you to do something that's impossible for you to do. But with God, all things are possible. And so even as Jesus would tell, the, the, there's a passage in, in Mark where Jesus tells a paralytic, he, this man's never walked before. His friends had to come and lower him down to a, through a hole in the roof. And Jesus tells the man, rise up, take your, take your pad, and, and leave. He asked the man to do the impossible. But the man immediately rose up, 
rolled up his pad and left. The same time that Jesus asks you to do the impossible, he gives you the ability to do the impossible. He will give you a heart that can repent of your sins and follow after him. He will help you to turn from those false gods of possessions and power and pleasure and to follow him. And so he's asking you to do the impossible, but let me tell you, it's possible with him. Perhaps there's also some here today that think they believe, um, but are really trusting in themselves. They're like the Pharisees. They have this pile of good works that that's what they're trusting in. Um, And I just ask you today to ask these questions. Where is your hope? When you ask, why do I have eternal life, do you immediately immediately start listing off a list of things that you have done, or do you think immediately of what God has done for you in, in, in your life? Um, do you know God's peace and rest? Are you looking for that one more thing to help me have an assurance that, that I have eternal life? Um, I know that God will not let you have that rest if you are not tro- fully trusting in him. So if you're having that, that lack of peace and lack of rest about that, please ask God to, you know, what is it that is keeping me from Christ? And come to him. Again, helpless to change, but knowing that we are in need of change. We are great sinners in, in need of salvation. And then I know there's some of you that are already following Jesus. And we just give praise to God and rejoice that he did the impossible for us. That he has made us a disciple. And yet, at the same time, he calls us to make more disciples. So we need to spend a lot of time like those disciples just meditating on those passages of how a person is saved and what a, a right way to come to God is. Um, we need to be finding those lost and bringing them to Jesus just the way that the, the parents brought their helpless, their helpless uh, children to Jesus. And then we need just kind of like Jesus to try to help them understand their need for a Savior and point them to Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So let me pray for us now. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I just do give you thanks that you do save sinners. Father, that as we follow after Jesus and see the way he lived his life, Father, and as we follow him all the way to the cross and we see that place where, where Jesus was crucified and, and died for our sins, Father, and then we continue to follow and we see him raised from the dead with victory over sin and death. Father, and we see that he is who he says he is the Lord Jesus Christ and the one whom we should follow and worship. Father, we just thank you for making that known to us. Father, I also just uh, pray for those this morning who, who you have caused to hear the, the gospel preached. Father, as they, you cause them to see your son as the one who calls people to repentance and belief. Father, I pray that you help them now. Help give them hearts that they might come and repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. Father, again, we just uh, thank you for this time. Pray to you continue as we sing in worship to help just empower our worship to you as, as it is due. Father, I thank you that, uh, just pray that you would, uh, again, by your spirit, cause your words that are, that are here in the scriptures to, to have power in people's lives, to change them, power to uh, just cause your disciples to, to do the work that you have called us to in, in making disciples. Father, but in all these things we rejoice that, that you are great, that you love us, and that you are full of, of mercy towards sinners. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.